My name is Chris Taylor. If there's any guests here, I'm one of the, the, the pastoral team. And I'm honored to be up here and preaching today. I have eight kids and soon, no, 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 18 grandkids. I have three pregnant daughters right now. Whew. I think the record we had was four, right? Pregnant at one time? Yeah. My daughter didn't even know. Happy Mother's Day. How many mothers here are soon to be mothers? Soon to be mothers. I know one's in the nursery, I think. Okay. Looks like a lot of them stayed home today to be pampered. That's the word. Pampered by the husband. So anyhow. Uh, The text today is Psalm 34, verse 8. It's a very short text, so it'll probably be a very short sermon. All right. And I'm going to read it. We'll start at verse 7, 34, 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed or happy is the man who takes refuge in him. Will we pray with me real quick? Father, you are Father in heaven from whom every family is named, Lord. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you're the one that defines what family is. You're the one that defines what fatherhood and motherhood and childhood is. And we're so grateful you not left us alone. You left us with your precious word. And we pray, Lord, that you would um, uh, bring life and grace through your word, through your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to come. Bless the preaching in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Matthew read a couple of my verses I'm going to read. But first of all, I want to say we love children here. All right? We want to make that massively clear as a pastoral team. We love kids. We love noisy kids. We like quiet kids a little bit better, but we'll take the noisy ones, okay? Because I think that's the only way they come, right? (laughs) So... I love sitting in the pew with my daughters, my little granddaughters, and making them laugh when the prayers are going on up here, and we're supposed to be sober and quiet, and uh, I just love the laughing. When my wife and I had three kids back in the mid-80s, we were already one ahead of our closest three or four couples that we hung out. They had all stopped at two, and we had three, and... And I remember talking with my wife. We were struggling. We seemed to want more kids, but it seemed we already met our quota. We had only planned on having really two kids when we got married. We already had three. And I remember a missionary friend of us from Wales who had eight kids was visiting and staying at our house. And we already had Stephen, Lindsay, and Krista, right? I asked him, should we have another baby? And... And he quoted to me this psalm, Psalm 127. He said, Behold, children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. And he asked me just one question. He said, Would you ever reject a gift from God? I said, Well, probably not. 
And the answer was rhetorical, right? That children are a gift from the Lord, and they always will be. The fruit of the womb is a reward. And I'm so grateful for that, but every one of our kids subsequent to that were, were <laughs> steps of faith. We weren't one of those families who say, well, God, give us as many kids as you want. Uh, I met if we had, we probably would have had 15 kids. I cannot comprehend having any more than eight kids. I mean, that's incomprehensible. 9, 10, 11, 12. You guys have had that many. Bless you, man. That is really amazing. But I can also imagine somebody who's had four kids can't imagine having eight kids, right? Or two kids or five kids. You just don't know the joy on the other side. So I have to, I believe that having more than eight kids would be even a greater massive joy than the eight kids I have. When we had Kelly, we had Kelly at the time when my had a major business crisis, and she was born in the midst of crisis, and yet she brought us such joy in the midst of that. Sam came, and it was probably one of the few times the Lord spoke to us or spoke to me. My wife seemed to always want more kids right at that two-year point, Right? But me, I didn't have the faith, so I would pray, right? God, <laughs> say no. <laughs> but God said yes. And one of the few times God spoke to me, God's probably spoke to me 10 or 20 times in my life. I just really sensed audible voice from the Lord. We had one kid, three daughters, right? One, ki- one, one boy. He was a kid. <laughs> Lindsay was a holy terror. <laughs> no. No, Lindsay, amen. Lindsay was such a joy. One, two, three girls, and I'm thinking, God, I don't want another girl. <laughs> Let me say that the girls are the best kids in the world to have, okay? But I wanted a boy, right? I didn't learn what happens later in life when boys turn. You have to teach them all these finer things in life that are totally embarrassing, all right? You know, about sexuality and all this kind of stuff and the struggles boys do and Girls are great. They just seem to flow. At least my daughters flowed through life really well. And what God spoke to me when I was praying, God said, I'll give you a boy if you will be willing to have one more. Dang it. What kind of answer is that? (laughs) So we did. We had a boy. And God gave us a boy, I should say. And then we had Danny, who's sitting here and lives in Corvallis with his gorgeous wife, Kristen. Thank you for being here. Um, and then we quit, right? Because God didn't say anymore, right? We had six kids. And then lo and behold, Krista, when she's like 12 years old or something, starts a day. We had devotions like four days a week in the mornings. And, and Krista, when her, just starts talking, said, God, she's crying. She's crying. She says, I, God wants to give us another child, you know. And then she starts like prophesying, okay? She starts saying, God's going to give us twins. And... My wife and I got, felt guilty. Not the best way to have kids. <laughs> but I think, honestly, that was sort of our motivation. We said, okay, I was 40, she was 39, you know. And, and as usually happened with Donna and I, she got instantly pregnant. And at eight and a half months or eight months, we discovered... We always use midwives, so we didn't use ultrasounds in those days. The midwife tells us, you, <laughs> you better get an ultrasound. So at eight months, she says, I have a funny feeling there's twins. I'm a, Donna was just pff, massive, you know. 
I said, she's bathed up every time, right? And <laughs> poor wife. I would never tell that to her. She's not in the room here, so I can say all kinds of things to embarrass her. <laughs> and so at eight months, we go to the ultrasound. The doctor's there, and he's doing his thing, and he's putting that, you know how they put that object? I don't know if they do that. He's, he's got the liquid gel in her tummy, and he's going like this. Like for an eternity, he goes, there's a head. Then another attorney goes, there's a head. And I'm thinking, here's what I'm thinking. I said, thank God, there's only one head. He's identifying the same head. And then he goes, he takes it, he goes, and here's literally what he says. He said, yep, there's two in there. And I was crying for a split second. But I wasn't crying for joy. You know, I was going through another business crisis at the time. Season of my life's all about business crises. But I happened to be going through business crisis, and one child seemed insurmountable to, to take. And here was one. So it was like tears, so I had to find I was not happy that we were born twins, that we had twins. But as it was, we had them. And, you know, there's nothing quite, I can't say there's anything that tops having babies in your later years. You know, most of you are having babies. The problem with babies, not the problem with them, but the struggle we have with having babies, we usually have them early in life, right? And it's early in life when we're figuring out our careers, we're working through our marriage struggles with this other person that we've married and are trying to figure out how to get along. And then God pops in a living creature that's immortal, immortal, and it's going to live forever. And he says, I give this baby to you. And we're saying we're inadequate. We don't know what we're doing. How are we going to do this? And God says, I trust you. (laughs) I've given you my good word. And here's this living. And it always struck me. I'm I'm in awe when I think a baby in my arms and said, Chris, Donna, you get to prepare for him for heaven. And I've always taken that responsibly, seriously, massively important. Just thinking that all my life, God, all my parenthood, he's given me the opportunity to shape and mold a child for a great future of enjoying God forever in heaven. The world doesn't support that, do they? Our culture right now. There's a quote from Stanley Harrowhaus, who's from Duke University, I believe, said, the vacuity or the emptiness of our society is revealed by our inability to come with a sufficient rationale for having children. So sad. Christians have children in great part in order to tell our children the story. Tether them way back to the past to 2,000 years ago and 4,000 years before that when God created the heavens and the earth and he designed in his purposes and plans a son to to be crucified before the ages began so that my son or my daughter may hear that message in my household. Powerful responsibility. Christians have children as a witness that the future is not left to us and that life, even in a threatening world, is worth living. Can you say amen to that? Life is worth living, not because children are our future or the hope of the future, but because God 
is the hope of the future. You see, men, parents, and mothers specifically, I think more than a father, have a power to influence multiple generations. Every child, every child a Christian gets represents our willingness to go on in the face of difficulties, suffering, and the ambiguity of life, of modern life. And this, this, and is thus our claim that we have something worthwhile to pass on. That we have something worthwhile to pass on. You know, when I think of children, so many thoughts come to my mind. I, I think of motherhood. In so many ways, in God, there's this, this, this paradox that happens in life. It's not in spite of things we do, but because of. And what I mean by that, I reflect over my life and I think about all the good things God has done. And then I look at my gift sets and my talents and, and skills, and I, I, and I see the goodness that's happened in our life and the blessing of our children and our grandchildren. Um, I just have to conclude that it's all of grace. You know, that God has blessed, I really believe this firmly, is God has blessed us in so many ways. It's like Second Chronicles 6 9 says the Lord looks to and fro over the face of the earth he's looking looking to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart are holy and completely his in relationship with him that trusts him blessed is the man happy is the woman happy is the mother who puts her trust in God and God is inviting us in this psalm to taste, just taste, mothers, taste and see that the Lord is good. With children. God has entrusted to you, moms, these little immortal souls. Like I said. It speaks so much to those of us who don't think we have our act together. Who don't, who think we don't have our act together. You know, <laughs> I thought last night I didn't even have a message. You know, it was just, just didn't have anything. You know, and I thought I should just come up here with a TED talk or something. You know, and just say, tell you all kinds of stories and see how great kids are and stuff like that. And I'm sort of doing that. And I probably will have to finish this before I'm even done with my outline. You know, God's gifts are first, as this psalm says, they're a gift from the Lord. Children are a gift from the Lord, but they're always first liabilities or responsibilities, right? They're a handful, as Kidner says in Psalms, before they're a quiverful. And everyone here who has kids know how sacrificial, how difficult the suffering that we go through with children, the cost, the price. Yet most of us know the fulfillment and the joy and the satisfaction and the peace 
that we can say with, with John the Apostle, I have no greater joy than this to see my children walking in the truth. When we were done homeschooling, we homeschooled our kids for a quarter of a century. I think there's probably some here that probably maybe beat me in that they have more kids. Quarter, 1991 to 2016. So two years ago, we stopped. And I, I told a lot of you guys this story. I said I was going to tattoo myself for the first time now that I live in Port with Tetelestai. See, there's two Greek students, they know that. Tetelestai, you know what that means? It's the perfect form of, of, of it is finished. As you know, it's the words of Jesus on the cross, right? And I argued with my daughters primarily. I said, if I put that, it would be a great witnessing tool. You know, at the places where I meet my unsaved friends. But what it really meant... <laughs> Is what I said when I was done with homeschooling. It is finished. And my wife, <laughs> I, I just imagine it this morning. If I actually did that, because a couple of my daughters said, Dad, you ain't tattooing yourself. Just, <laughs> you know. I'm sure my wife would come and see that. She says, Well, you better add something else on that. A, a girl, which means he is risen. You have 18 kids, Bubs. You have 18 grandkids. Now 16 sons-in-laws and daughters. You better get your butt, oh, your rear in gear. It never stops, does it? Those are our grandparents here. How many grandparents do we have here? Yeah. Hallelujah. Another thought that comes to mind with children is 1 Corinthians seven fourteen. 1 Corinthians seven fourteen. he's talking about marriage, and it says that the believing spouse, by virtue of the marriage, being married to an unbeliever, there's something powerful that happens. I don't totally understand. It says your children are made holy. And I was naive enough to believe that, that, that my kids were called, elected. Even though I didn't know the terminology when I started this. So I started a, a visual that I did mostly with my younger kids. I don't know if I started with Sam. Because we came to the Reformed faith like mid-1990s. We discovered John Piper and Owen and, 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 and Edwards and people like this. That just transformed my love for the word of God. And transformed my thinking about the majesty and beauty of God. But... Through another organization, ATIA, which is, was a homeschool sort of association, which, um, which was very helpful in our lives. We read Proverbs. It taught us to, to, to read the scriptures, to do the thing we called wisdom search. We read Proverbs for nine years straight, at least four days a week, five verses, a chapter a day. And Stephen... When he was about 18 years old, he said, I am so sick of Proverbs. It is just coming out my nose. So we stopped reading Proverbs. But here's the amazing thing. Stephen now, what does he do in the mornings? He reads the Proverbs to his kids. Because there's so much rich theology. I wouldn't recommend that, but I certainly recommend reading the scriptures to your kids. I'm really getting ahead of myself here. Forgive me. But 1 Corinthians 7, 14 says your kids are holy. 
And I took that as an exhortation to me as a young father to remind my kiddos of the marvelous privilege it was for them to be part of our family and, and be a daughter of a mother that loves Jesus Christ. And we had this ritual. And I pray for each of my kids, which was a wearisome task when you have still have, I think Stephen was married by then or something, but we had eight kids. I go to him each and pray for him. But the younger ones, I would go through this ritual. I go, did God make you? I go, yes, daddy. I go, did God make any mistakes when he made you? No, daddy. I said, what does that mean? And I tell him, you are fearfully, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And then I'd ask him this. I said, okay, who named you? Oh, you did, Daddy. Did you choose your name? No. Daddy, did you decide when you were born? No, Daddy, I didn't. Did he decide when or where you were born? No, Daddy. No. Did you know that your last name before you were born was going to be Sam Taylor or Dan Taylor? No, Daddy. I said, were you, bo- you could have been born in Madagascar or Mozambique. Those are two. I don't even know where in the world those countries are. <laughs> okay. But they both began with an M. I could remember quickly. So Madagascar is an island, and Mozambique, I think, is in Africa. I said, what would have happened if you were born in Madagascar or Mozambique? And I explained to you, you would probably be, probably be with a family that were not Christians. They would probably be Muslims or something. So I said, what does that say to you when you were born in a family that confesses and loves Jesus Christ? What does that tell you? And they go, Daddy, that's... That's pretty cool. Yeah, I said, God chose you before the foundation of the earth. He created you. Not only did he name you, choose the time and date and where you were born, but he put you in a family that loves Jesus and will share the gospel with you. Oh, wow, Dad. He said, you know what that means, son, Dan? It means God called you to hear the gospel and he's going to save you. But I think that what that created in our kids, and my, mom, my wife did this too, was this deep level of sense of self-worth. That they, they were mago dei. But after they slept at night, the next morning started, we start spanking them, <laughs> disciplining them, and doing all this kinds of stuff. So we, on the other side, we teach them that you're infinitely corrupt. You are so beautiful. You are magnificent. You're the Mago Day. God chose you. He called you. He makes no mistakes. That he wants you to know too that you're a desperate sinner. You're desperately broken. And I had the faith to believe, I suppose, that my because of all those things that our kids were called. You know, when I was See, this is going to turn into a TED talk. I can tell right now. Because I, <laughs> when I was courting with Donna, I got to get to motherhood here eventually. Um, we lived in a Christian ministry, and uh, 
I got saved in 74. My wife got, no, 73. My wife got saved in 75. She got saved at Lighthouse Ranch in Lolita, California, which is a ranch with four or 500 people during the Jesus movement. And people were getting saved left and right. Their ministry would go, they go pick up people hitchhiking. They preach the gospel, bring them into the community, the Christian community. And it just exploded. And we became actually a church planning movement. The leader was, had a little foresight that he didn't want a thousand people living on this lighthouse. Uh, Coast Guard station. So he started sending out these young guys like me and others that were 21 years old, known the Lord for six months, and had us planting churches all over the world. Over the world, okay? Not just across town like we do, but, you know, down in Nicaragua and Wales and Germany and France, Guatemala. And I was single and I was an elder. 22 years old, single elder, okay? I'm not espousing that. I'm just saying we were so desperate. <laughs> we had so many people getting saved. We were desperate for leadership. So they said, well, you got, are you moving? Are you alive? Do you breathe? Can you see? Can you talk? Do you know what this is? You're an elder. In fact, I got appointed as a teacher, okay? I was in the five-fold ministry, all right? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, so I had a response to equip the saints for the work of service, right? Well, in those days we had, we also had, um, what do you call it? Matchmakers. That's what you call it. Everybody's getting married. We're all young. We're all single. We're all ex-hippies, right? Well, dope smokers. And see, and I was fortunate to meet Donna in 1978. I was going up and down the West Coast training people in, in business. And she happened to be living in this house. And she was so, so beautiful, <laughs> I, and I was so insecure. I didn't say a single word to her. I, I stayed in that house for like two or three weeks. And her impression of what I said, this guy is really stuck up, right? My impression, I just was so enamored with the beauty of this young lady. Well, we ended up, we ended up realigning, you know, in, in, in Vancouver, Washington, where we planted church in 1980. And we, we, uh, I, these matchmakers, these self-appointed matchmakers said, since I was so insecure, they said, you know, Donna likes you. You know, I really liked her, right? And, and, and Donna found out about it, and she was ticked off, totally ticked off. That somebody would, would breach the confidence and, 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 and tell somebody that she liked me. So she promptly, I was visiting up there from Eugene. I was part of another church plant, Eugene. And I was up in Vancouver visiting them on the weekends. And she, so I drove her to her work, which is at Beard's Frame Shop here in, in Vancouver. And she promptly told me, said, Chris, I'm only interested in a relationship. I'm not interested in anything more, just a friendship. And... And that broke my heart, right? And fortunately, she let me pursue her. She didn't make it easy. I ended up moving up. <laughs> I moved up there to help charge the church, but I really, on the auspices to move up there, I really was going there to, to, to get the girl, right? And all I was, all, and I did it all wrong, all right? All I cared was this was one beautiful woman, right? And she still is. She's gorgeous. She's a little, <laughs> I didn't think of anything else. I didn't think that she was born in Philadelphia, right? Lived in a row house. A father had three jobs, right? Their idea of, of camping was like in, 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 in the, just being eaten alive with bugs. That's all they did. So you camp, there's bugs there. We don't go there. 
right? Me, I grew up all my life camping and backpacking, skiing and all this. I'm a West Coast Renaissance man, right? Doing everything and, 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 and I didn't even think about that. You know, all you kids these days, you all, you do your compatibility. So do we like the same? Is that what you guys are sort of, do we like the same thing? Well, <laughs> it helps to be born on the, the same city, right? Okay. But you have no idea how different cultures are from the East Coast to the West. Her brothers were all Democrats. They all worked one job all of their life. They all liked the, the, the what are the Patriots? The, I remember sitting watching a game with them once, and I don't know nothing about pro football, right? And I think, what's the football game? <laughs> football team in Philadelphia? Eagles, Eagles. And I go, we're sitting there, and they got their Coors Light, and you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and, <laughs> and, and, well, they actually, at the time, they now had a dark beer, I guess, back then. But it was still dark beer light. I don't know. That's inconceivable, right? Well, anyhow, they, they're, I go, is this, is this the Patriots? And they both look at me, the two brothers look at me. I went back to TV. So that's the kind of relationship I had with you guys. There's no symbiosis, no compatibility. You know, I don't know why. That, that wasn't even part of the sermon. I'm sorry. But... <laughs> But Donna did something really amazing. She finally gave up. In those days, you didn't propose, right? You just sort of progressed in the relationship, right? And I remember sitting in this room. I live in the trailer back. She lived in the communal house. And, and we could never get a chance to talk because there's a certain gentleman that would stay there, a single guy, till the late hours of the morning, till midnight, till we'd finally give up and go to bed, right? So, but the times we did get to talk, I go, you think you would marry a guy like me? You know, I figure, hey, I'm good looking, elder. The, 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 the matchmakers are saying, this guy's only two single elders in the whole ministry over the world. Chris is one of them, and he's actually good looking, and he plays guitar. Why don't you, you know? And I have Farmer John, you know, overalls. I mean, they were really, and Donna told me, though, that's what sold it, the overalls, right? Me worship with a gun. But, and she always say, no. Nah. I'm praying about it. I'm talking to the sisters, the older sisters, right? They're giving me counsel. And she made me take every step of the way towards her. And I thank God, you know, that I married Donna. Because she is a woman who tastes and sees that the Lord is good. And I found that out numerous times afterwards and I think she was like prophetic on our wedding invitation she put we had a friend do this hard work it was Psalm 128 Psalm 128 who puts a wedding invitation says your children are like olive plants around your table who puts that on a wedding invitation (laughs) but that psalm says this how happy is the man Who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of your hands. You will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. And your children like olive plants around your table. What's amazing at the center of that psalm. I don't know if she saw it. I don't know if it's prescience or prophetic. I don't know why she chose that psalm. I always wanted was to get married, right? I don't care what's on the invitation. Just get married, right? I was cocky enough to say, you, you know, you can't have 
If you marry me, I'm a disciple, right? If you marry me, I'm a disciple, and, and I'll never promise you a picket, a white picket fence, right? That was my firm stand on my discipleship to my wife. <laughs> in this psalm, it says, within your house, and the Hebrew means at the center or the heart of your home is a woman. And that's probably the point I make today. I, I know there's so much more to say, but I was thinking about that this morning. You know, I was saying, what's the strongest muscle in the body, right? Because that word literally means, if you take it to its root, it means thigh in the Hebrew. I said, surely the thigh is the strongest muscle in the body. But I found out that was the jaw muscle. <laughs> My wife loves to talk. So I, that makes total sense to me, you know, that the strong, that she'd be described as a jaw muscle. No, but, but it's not. It's a thigh muscle, right? But I started thinking about heart. And I thought... <laughs> The word literally is translates heart or center. And at the heart of your home is a woman. And I think that speaks so massively important. Because the heart is not the strongest muscle, is it? But it's the most hardest working, enduring muscle that the human body has. Every day it beats. It pumps two ounces of blood at every beat. It pumps 2,500 gallons a day and will beat 3 billion times in a person's life. And I think, as I thought about this, that is what mothers are, you know? They're fearless. They're hardworking. And I just can't comprehend getting pregnant and having this thing eight times or nine times or three times or one time and the suffering that goes through that and what mothers give up. Mothers don't ever give way to the belief that you have little influence in a household. Can you agree with me today that the psalmist is correct at true? I think women have more influence on children than men will ever have. I believe that. And I, I've always joked, you know, I get to sit up here and stand in front of a pulpit. I get to be a pastor. I, mean, I get to be successful. And every time I think about it, it's like I feel like I'm a, a peacock. You know, the male bird, peacock has all the foliage, right? All the beautiful feathers. And the woman, the wife, is humble and brown and doesn't get anything. Then I remind myself, well, we hunt pheasants, right? (laughs) We only shoot the ones that have nice tail feathers, right? We shoot the males. So maybe there's a purpose in it. But, but, But the men seem to get the glory. But behind the scene, there's a heart. So women don't ever believe. Mothers don't ever believe your influences only go so far. Never let anyone try to persuade you in this world that motherhood is not a high and virtuous calling. And I'll just include with a couple of New Testament verses. I wanted to go in so much more, but we'll call it quits. Paul in 2 Timothy says to Timothy, and Timothy, as you know, is Paul's, he said, I have no one of kindred spirit than Timothy. That's what he said in Philippians. He calls him his son. He becomes his emissary to, to Ephesus to set the church in order. 
And in his second book, right before his death, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, I am mindful of the sincere faith that is in Eunice, your mother, and Lois, your grandmother. In Acts 16, where Paul calls Timothy, it mentions Lois's faith that she was a believer in Christ. She was quite possibly a mother. His father was a Gentile, a Greek, probably an unbeliever. And But Paul says, he, he asks, he says, I'm mindful of the sincere faith that is in Lois and Eunice, your mother, and I am confident, I am sure, that that same sincere faith is you, in you. To me, I t- that is so mind-boggling to me. That Paul, in his last letter to Tim, he sent churches in order, he says, just to remind you what massive influence your mother had on you. You're my emissary because of your mother's influence. And later on in 2 Timothy 3, 14, he reminds them again. I'm going to go to it so I can quote it. He says, you, however, Timothy, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. I always thought he was talking about himself. Because Paul says, hey, part to faithful men will be able to impart to others, right? Teach faithful men and disciple. But I, he's not talking about himself. He's talking about Timothy's mom. And, but what's even massively important, it said more, it says, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. You know, from childhood. In the Greek word there's brephos, which means a nursing baby, okay? And quite possibly still in the womb. So here's a mom that with an unbelieving husband that faithfully imparts the word of God, the word of truth to Timothy, that ultimately leads the wisdom that leads to faith in Christ Jesus, and he becomes Paul's most famous emissary. That's the influence of a woman. You know, I might say this also, motherhood. Husbands, wives. When Donna and I finally got married, I was, as a single man, I, I was self-employed and I was able to make enough money to support myself. But I was more interested, I was just lazy. You know, I just, I just love riding my bike. And, 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 you know, and an elder who's single and rides his bike is just a great way to live, Right? But when I got married to Donna, something changed. <laughs> something changed. All of a sudden, I, 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 I started working hard. <laughs> I felt the responsibility of supporting my wife, and I loved it. I just loved paying the bills. And I'm so grateful for Donna because once I started tasting success, my business, I, that's a whole other story. God opened the door in my business. It was just, you know, my dad offered a position in the company and, and, it, and it's basic, it would, it, if it existed now, it would probably be the largest electrical contracting company west of the Mississippi, without doubt. 
But my dad gave two caveats. Says, you have to give up Jesus, and you have to quit that church stuff of yours. You know, I brought that to my wife, you know, you know and I hear I'm desperately during a, a recession trying to make 80 bucks a day so I can support my family. And I'm going out every day. And she goes, ain't happening. Ain't happening. <laughs> and when that decision came, God, this is that in spite of, because of, because of that decision, within a week, it just so happened that I worked at a lot who's, who the general manager happened to be the son-in-law of Mike Solopontiac, who happened to own about 20 dealerships up and down the West Coast, and just happened to be, get promoted to be general manager of the largest Nissan dealership in the Northwest. And he just so happens to call me. And say, do you want to have this? So my business went from one, myself, to 40 poise in two months. That's how God works. That's the influence a wife has on a husband for his good. But what if my wife had said, mothers, I want, I like a nice house. I like the vacations. I want Status. I want power. I want significance. And money will give it to me. You know what I would have done? You know what I would have done? I, I, I pray that every husband here would have done that. The same thing. I would have gone out there, and instead of four quick lubes, I'd have 120. Right? And we'd have nice cars, nice houses, a second or third house. But you know what we have? We wouldn't have any kids. And we probably wouldn't be married now. <laughs> Scripture says that Satan tempted Eve. You know, and that's a mystery. I always have, I've asked myself this week, why didn't he tempt Adam? Any of you theologians know the reason why he didn't tempt Adam? Have you ever? Why didn't he just go direct frontal attack on the guy, the patriarch? Why didn't he do that? And this is sheer speculation. Here's why I think he did it. <laughs> and, it and it's probably not right, but I just think there's... A bit of it that's true. I think Satan, it says he's cunning, and by his craftiness, he deceived Eve. Right? And I suspect, <laughs> if I would imagine, if he would, I think he did, because I think Adam was like me. I mean, he's just getting started in this family stuff, man. And he's just trying to figure it out, and he wants to please Eve. Man, he's just out of his side, and he's a joy of my joy, bone of my bones. Man, this woman, he's singing, right? He's writing poetry about this woman, right? I mean, he's enamored with this woman, so saying, I'll get the woman. And then it just says, she gave the fruit to Adam, and he ate. Why did Adam do that? I think it's a part because of the cunningness of the devil. The devil knew of a woman's influence on a man. That's what I think. And he threw the dice, and that's a risk he took, and it worked. I quit. Women, mothers, let me just say, what's the most fundamental, most important thing you can do for your family? I would say to celebrate the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ and live holy for him. I mean, you can have all kinds of disciplines. You can do all kinds of things. Proverbs 31 talks about all these cool things women do, right? And we have these studies and they say, if I did it, it was out at night and, and I was shipped from afar and red clothing and all this kind of stuff and making money for my husband. If I did all that stuff, 
But you know how Proverbs says, blessed is the woman who fears the Lord. Blessed is the fruit. Let her have the fruit of her hands. And mothers, I say your work is not vain because the promise, this is the promise. Your works, which I believe is a scripture, your children will praise you at the gates, at the place of authority and significance and power and ruling your children because of your godly influence. Okay. I want to pray for somebody right now. This is the most thing I really want to do. There's people here who, parents and I, that are probably sad, if not grieved, regret. I would like to pray. I pray for the prodigals that are in this assembly. I know there's a handful of people here, parents, grandparents, that, that every time this kind of word is preached, that you're of the power of a godly fluence, they say, but I have the name of a son or daughter that comes in and said, this is not working for me. We did our best. We suffered. We sacrificed. We cared for. We gave everything we had, but my son or daughter hates God. I want to pray. I want, can you be bold and stand up, whoever has a prodigal in this assembly? You know, don't be ashamed. In the back, maybe up. Mother or father, a prodigal, please do it. I just believe the presence of God is here to heal. Don't hesitate, okay? I want to speak a word to you, every one of you, okay? One, God is not finished, okay? Two, he sees your prayers and the pain and the agony of your heart because he's the father of prodigals. (laughs) He's the father that runs to the prodigal. And three, I just want to pray for a release that your children, your prodigals would see what it means to taste and see the beauty of the Lord. No person has ever been convicted or converted by hell or the natural perfections of God, his knowledge, his power, his majesty. They need to see his beauty, his love, his mercy, his grace, his kindness, and Jesus Christ as the representation of the glory of God in those things. So I want... Can I, you either, you, why don't you, people gather around? There's five or six up there. Will you gather around? Everyone around, lay hands. On the, don't let anybody be forsaken. If you want to get, know he's praying for you, come up here and I'll lay hands on you. Gather around our dear saints. Let's have at least two or three people around. I see Greg up there with only one. Don't be afraid to go up there. Even if you don't know him, there's a power. Paul said, gifts are imparted by the laying on of hands. Something has happened when we identify ourselves with those people. Okay? Anybody else?
Okay. You guys want to come down? I think there's some people going up in the balcony for you guys up there. God, I want to say, God knows the sadness and the piercings of your heart every time you think about your kids. Father, only you know. We just thank you that you call yourself Father, love. Father, you are the only one who truly identifies what it means to have your son pierced with sin. Lord, you know the pain, the grief, the sorrow. The regret, Lord. I speak against regret, Lord. I speak release and blessing to these couples, these parents, Lord God, that they would be set free from the guilt that has no place in the gospel. And Lord, your word is sure, Lord. We pray that the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ would come upon all these children, Lord. That they would taste and see how gloriously beautiful you are. And lastly, I pray for these parents, Lord. I pray that they would, 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 would turn, Lord, and they would taste and see again how beautiful and glorious you are. That their lives would be a display, Lord. That they would savor, Lord, the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ. And as a result, that there would flow out of them a display that is a satisfaction and complete delight and joy for who you are, Lord God. Do it now. Do it now, Lord God, we ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Well, we love you guys. You know, my wife and I pray, it's top of mind awareness for me. You know, in the advertising industry, you know, they have this thing called TOMA, top of mind awareness. And, and, and that's what comes to Donna Mind's minds every time we pray. We pray that this will be not a three-year church, a five-year, 10-year, 15, but another 100-year church of multiple generations serving Jesus. And that's his promise to a thousand generations to those who love him and obey his commandments. So let's worship and we'll take communion as we usually do from the back row forward. Those who have been baptized and believe in Jesus Christ, you're welcome to partake in the table. It's a table of grace and mercy. And you parents that came forward, take that bread and that wine. And remember, it is finished. It is finished. His promises are yea and amen. And he will fulfill his good word for all of us. Amen? Amen.